What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Adam Rennie. This is the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to share with you our special guest today, Kate Scarlata, who is one of the pillars in the IBS nutrition community. She's going to speak with us today about the low FODMAP diet. This is the most researched diet for irritable bowel syndrome and also is used in some other conditions. We go into depth today about the low FODMAP diet. We also speak about when the low FODMAP diet does not work for people or when it's there's a lower response, what other conditions to think about that might be causing functional digestive symptoms such as bloating, diarrhea, gas, abdominal pain. She is a breadth of knowledge. She has a number of books published on IBS and on nutrition related to IBS. She's spoken all over the world. I'm very excited because she has been someone I have followed for a number of years and have consulted with her on some of my toughest cases. She's always been very helpful. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guest, Kate Scarlata. Great place to start today would be just to hear a little bit about your background as far as how you got into the space of nutrition and as a dietitian and what brought you uh, to thinking about FODMAPs. Absolutely. So I've been a dietitian for over 30 years. So FODMAPs wasn't even, you know, in the literature or science at all when I started. Um, I was interested in nutrition just because I really loved science and math and um, and food. And so it kind of combined all of those things into one area and off I went. Um, so I was a dietitian in the outpatient clinic at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. That was my first time um, working in a lot of different um, healthcare, you know, states with anywhere from HIV to uh, bone marrow transplant patients. Um, but really what I loved was was nurturing um, sort of underweight conditions and getting them back to um, a more nourished state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, about seven years into my career, I was pregnant with my middle son and I developed um, some colicky abdominal pain that prompted a visit to the emergency room, and they discovered um, after 24 hours of observation and extreme pain that I was, I had a strangulated intestine. And so I lost about six feet of my small intestine, Mm. um, you know, the entire ileum, which is responsible for absorbing B12 and fat primarily, um, and bile acids. So I became... um, intolerant to a lot of different um, fatty foods, which was a bummer. Um, Mm -hmm. And then subsequent to that, I developed small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which sort of slowly developed over about 10 years after my um, surgery. So, um, and I was totally lost. Um, My GI doctor had no idea how to help me. And so I just was the Google queen, like many of our patients. And um, a few telltale um, symptoms I was experiencing pointed to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I was treated for that um, and started delving into SIBO and IBS and ways to manage those symptoms and came across the literature on the low FODMAP diet. And quite honestly, 
it was like bells and whistles went off in my head. I, I looked at my husband and I said, this makes so much sense to me personally, but mm-hmm. this is going to be the, this is going to be a really big thing. And I think we should go to Australia. <laughs> and he said, okay. And so we went to Monash to visit with their team and learn a little bit more. Me, uh, he came for the ride um, and really um, started understanding this diet concept and then droves of patients started coming to my office and I was just flooded with um, an interest in this area and I'm still in it. Um, Remarkably doing an elimination diet which is really a far uh, you know miles away from the diet education that I appreciated in the beginning of my career, which was eat everything and a lot of it. And then suddenly I was doing an elimination diet, which, you know, I, I really was kind of surprised I was in that business, but the low FODMAP diet was just so effective for so many people that it really, um, you know, just kept me interested and passionate in helping patients. Mm-hmm. So in those early days, was it difficult for you to transition onto the low FODMAP diet or did you find that it made sense to you intuitively and then practically? You know, for me, I never went on like the full-blown elimination diet. Um, I sort of looked at the list of high FODMAP foods and really could acknowledge which ones I knew were problematic. Um, and then, you know, as I was doing the diet with my patients, I realized, you know, uh, chicory root <laughs> is not working for me either. It was mm-hmm. kind of a new additive on the, uh, you know, in the food supply. Um, so I've kind of integrated things as I've gone along and learned kind of where my line in the sand is with FODMAPs and, um, you know, how far I can branch out without, you know, really feeling uncomfortable. So, um, you know, it, it was a little bit intuitive and then also understanding the science and learning more and more about it. You know, I definitely had learned to take a few other foods out as well. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine you've kept in touch with the people at Monash and sort of are clued into how they're understanding the low FODMAP diet. Has that sort of been the process since leaving that initial meeting? Yeah, I mean, they were fabulous. Uh, Dr. Jane Muir, who really was the, uh, the, the mother of the Monash University app, which is such a fantastic resource. It was her idea, and she's really um, put a lot of work in, um, you know, analyzing foods and coming up with portions that would be suitable for the low FODMAP diet. Um, I've kept in touch with them. I've been very lucky to be involved with scientific papers with them and spoke at a scientific meeting in Italy with them, which was fantastic. And I'm partnering them with them now a little bit on um, some other educational initiatives. So yes, we've definitely kept in touch. And of course, our paths cross all the time at various, various scientific meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a key group of people that are really into this slow FODMAP diet education and and so you can't help but run into them at various talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking back to the first time you and I spoke, it was 2011, 2012, around that time. And um, at that time, I think you were really the main voice for the low FODMAP diet that even my patients were coming across. And now, these days, um, I have patients return from their visits with, at the gastroenterology office with a handout or something like that um, 
regarding the low FODMAP, low FODMAP diet. Um, can you speak to just how it's, how it's really gotten out there? Yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty remarkable. Um, it's the first real nutrition therapy for people with IBS that has science. And, you know, the gastroenterologists are really excited about that. And so, um, you know, as you know, IBS patients um, have always connected diet with their symptoms, um, but we just didn't have any real interest in looking at diet and IBS. So, um, you know, it, there is a lot of interest, I think, because it is so highly effective, it manages symptoms in 50 to 70% of those with IBS, if not a little bit more, depending on the study you're looking at. Um, so, you know, yes, there's a lot of dietitians that are interested. There's a lot of GI doctors that are interested, a lot of different medical groups that are interested in creating, um, you know, educational materials and continuing the research to really look at this diet and what it's doing and what it's not doing and why it's doing what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of back up a little bit and talk about some of the foundations of the low FODMAP diet, what the acronym means and for people who are not familiar with it or have, have never really wrapped their head around it. Okay. So yeah, it is kind of like a, you know, we call it kind of an ugly uh, <laughs> acronym. It's just kind of awkward, should we say, like a teenager. Yeah. It's a teenager <laughs> acronym. Um, but really what it stands for, the F stands for fermentable. So these are carbohydrates that are fermentable, meaning that bacteria will consume them and create gas in fermentation effects. Um, the O stands for oligosaccharides, and you don't need to remember that word ever again, but basically that includes fructans, which are in wheat, onion, and garlic primarily, and galacto-oligosaccharides, which are primarily found in legumes. Mm -hmm. And then the D stands for disaccharide, which is lactose, which is the sugar in milk, and monosaccharides for M, and that's um, found in fructose. Specifically as a FODMAP, it's foods that contain more fructose in the food than glucose. And that's important because glucose helps absorb fructose. So it's really those foods that have the extra fructose that are problematic because they're malabsorbed and can feed bacteria and also pull water into the intestine. And then the last, um, two uh, letters is and, so that's easy for A, and then P is polyols. And polyols, um, another name for polyols are sugar alcohols. These sugar alcohols are found naturally in fruits and vegetables such as stone fruits, peaches, plums, cauliflower, celery, uh, large amounts of sweet potato, um, but they're also additives. So we'll see sorbitol or xylitol or mannitol um, in sugar-free gum mints and even in some medications. Yeah, the reason these FODMAPs potentially cause digestive distress is, from what I from what I'm familiar with, is it's the the rapid fermentation and also potential malabsorption of the FODMAPs. Can you talk about why these may trigger digestive symptoms? So. We, there's a number of different sort of uh, theories or hypothesis around this. So FODMAPs are small carbohydrates. So essentially they're fast food for bacteria. They can get to the FODMAPs, they're small and create gas. So that's one 
They also pull water in as small carbohydrates, they pull water into the gut. So between the gas and the water, they're stretching the intestine. And it's believed that that stretching is aggravating some um, pain receptors in the, in the colon that are triggering some symptoms. But we also know, and I think this is what we're, which is really interesting and, and growing interest, is that when the bacteria in our gut consume FODMAPs, they also make metabolites. Mm -hmm. um, and those metabolites, one of them being lipopolysaccharide, which is an endotoxin and gram-negative bacteria and some other bacteria, um, histamine, this, these can contribute to um, some inflammation and potential pain and visceral hypersensitivity that we see in IBS. And visceral hypersensitivity is just a science word, meaning a very sensitive um, intestine. So that, that, that little extra gut stretching is painful for someone with IBS where someone else without IBS could have a little gas and bloating and doesn't feel that same pain sensation that an individual with IBS would have. Um, so I think to answer your question, there seems to be some effects to the, the distension or the stretching of the gut. There seems to be some effects due to some of these metabolites from bacteria, mm -hmm. um, but there still remains um, a lot of unknowns about how FODMAPs exert symptoms in IBS patients. But there's a lot of interest in really exciting novel studies coming out. Um, you know, they're being um, done right now. So more to come in the next year or two. Great. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting um, with um, LPS being uh, linked yeah. to intest intestinal permeability. True. Is, so the um, couple things that I wanted to talk about regarding the low FODMAP diet is, one is who is the most likely responder to it as far as what patient population, people who, what particular symptom set would be most likely to respond and which would be least likely? That's a really good question. I think the majority of the studies have really looked at IBSD, so the diarrhea predominance. Um, although one of the big studies done um, by Emma Halmos and the Monash team that was published in Gastroenterology in 2014 um, looked at all various subtypes of IBS, and they found in that particular study that 70% of the patients responded effectively to the diet intervention, so across all types of subtypes. Um, the, the evidence for diarrhea predominance a little bit higher just because that's been the primary cohort of patients that have been studied. Um, when a patient comes to me with pain and bloating, I feel pretty strongly that the low FODMAP diet is going to help them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see uh, obviously patients with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth respond to the low FODMAP diet, but I would tell you that there is absolutely zero diet evidence in the literature really looking at that patient population and the low FODMAP diet. So mm -hmm. most of that's done just on clinical observation. Mm -hmm. And also we know that IBS patients and SIBO patients, they're their symptoms mimic one another. So probably there, there's some of both groups within the group, you know? So sure. I think that we're, you know, I think it's 60% of um, patients with um, SIBO fit the criteria for having IBSD. So mm -hmm. 
you know, some of those patients in these cohorts that we've studied for the low FODMAP diet have been SIBO patients. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So if you want to look at it that way, there is probably a little evidence, but it just hasn't been clean, a clean study looking specifically at SIBO patients and diet. Right. Okay. So when you um, recommend someone going on the low FODMAP diet, what's your typical recommendation as far as duration? And is it a short-term recommendation, long-term? Yep. Yeah. So, well, first of all, when, I, when a patient comes to my practice, I'm looking to see, do they have a diagnosis of IBS? That way I know they've ruled out some organic disease such as IBD. I want to make sure that they've also looked, you know, ovarian cancer, are there other reasons for their symptoms and that the patient hasn't self-diagnosed themselves? I also don't want to put them on a modified diet before um, they've been tested for celiac disease because the low FODMAP diet is not gluten-free. However, it does reduce gluten significantly so that the serology testing probably would be inaccurate. So all of that needs to be done. Additionally, there's been some data um, looking at the relationship with disordered eating and eating disorders and GI conditions. Mm -hmm. And I do want to make sure that before I put an individual on a pretty restrictive elimination diet, I don't certainly want to place them at malnutrition risk or trigger eating disorder behavior. So I want to make sure that they're appropriate um, they don't have extreme food fears um, and that they really, um, I feel like they'll be appropriate for a, an elimination diet. Mm -hmm. um, that, so that being said, um, the patient that would be a good candidate would have those things ruled out. Um, they would be, you know, have good food security so they financially could afford some of the specialized food products possibly that they need on the diet. Um, and um, they, that they have, you know, symptoms that I think would benefit from the low FODMAP diet, which for me, based on the data is bloating and pain, which mm -hmm. they likely would have because many of the patients with IBS have those mm -hmm. symptoms. So when, when you've reached that point where you feel like they're a good candidate, do you typically recommend that they stay on the low FODMAP diet as an ongoing thing or just when they're flaring or what's the right. duration? Sorry, I didn't answer that question fully for you. Oh, so typically, okay. yeah. So typically if you look at the low FODMAP diet, it really is a three phase intervention. The first phase of the intervention is the elimination diet. And that usually lasts two to six weeks, depending on how quickly the patient responds. Um, most patients honestly respond within a couple days, but you know, um, if you look at the research um, in the Emma Halmo study that I talked about, in that study they provided all the food for the patients, so there was no like ramp up to understanding the diet. They didn't really need to understand the diet because they were getting all their food. Mm -hmm. And in that study, they found that it took about seven days for the patient to get the best, you know, their ultimate you know, as good as it was going to get symptom control by day seven. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to get any better after that. So mm -hmm. that gives you sort of an idea, like if they're really doing the diet well, by day seven, the patient's going to do well. In the the study at UMichigan, which was published, I think, in two, six, 2016, so it's the first randomized control trial in the U.S., 
they saw continual benefits on the diet up to four weeks. In part, the patients were doing the diet on their own. It probably took them a little while to kind of ramp up and settle into the diet. So I think for most patients in a clinic setting, four weeks is a good timeline to, if you really feel the patient is following the diet well, by four weeks, you're probably going to be as good as you're going to get. Mm -hmm. with the diet. And so, you know, keep, keep that as a baseline for you for the elimination phase. The mm -hmm. second phase is the reintroduction phase. And that's when we systematically reintroduce FODMAP subtypes. So those mm -hmm. lactose, excess fructose, the fructans that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. we're adding those foods back in small increments, slowly increasing to see what FODMAP subtypes the patient is um, challenged by. So um, we're not just giving them an apple because if you give a patient an apple, there's multiple FODMAPs in that apple and we don't know what FODMAP subtype they're, they're troubled by. So we're right. going to give them a little onion or we're going to give them a little garlic or we're going to give them a little um, milk and then mm. increment. And that uh, reintroduction phase can really take a while, eight to 10 weeks, depending on whether the patient reacts to a lot of foods because we need to give them a three-day sort of washout period where they can get their symptoms back to normal before we reintroduce another food. Mm -hmm. And then the last phase is the personalization phase. And this is when we gently back add back the foods that are not suspected as trigger foods and see how the patient does. As it stands now, that personalization phase can be ongoing as long mm -hmm. as the patient needs it. Um, so indefinitely. Um, but what I tell patients, and I've learned myself over the years, is to continually re-challenge your foods because tolerance to FODMAPs can change over time. And, you know, a number of different factors play a role in, in your IBS. Mm -hmm. Things might settle down postmenopausal for some people, might ramp up postmenopausal depending on what's going on. So, you know, it really isn't, you just need to kind of keep playing with the diet, you know, periodically to see um, how much more you can add back. The goal is really to have the most liberal diet as possible without triggering your symptoms. It's, you're not a winner if you're on the most restrictive diet. That's mm -hmm. not the goal. The goal is to have, you know, a wide variety of foods um, and not be so focused on the diet for the yeah. long term. That makes a lot of sense. And um, when someone goes on this, is there anything you're asking them to supplement with as far as to overcome any potential deficiencies or is there any risk of just staying on the personalized low FODMAP diet long-term? Is there any you know, the only thing that I would do with my patients is in, integrate a little bit of prebiotics with non-FODMAP prebiotic sources. Um, and my go-to has always been like raw oats and like an energy bite or adding a little of oats to a smoothie. Um, I might not start with the, that um, you know, adding raw oats on day one if they weren't normally consuming that because raw oats do have resistant starch which does create gas. Um, that's why it's prebiotic. Um, one of the reasons, the aftermath of it being consumed by good bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, over time, that might be something I might integrate, especially if patients are having problems with garlic and onion and wheat, which are, are real, you know, some other prime sources of prebiotics in their diet. Mm -hmm. um, from a nutritional standpoint, for the general patient, 
Uh, there's no reason to supplement unless you really see the patient is excluding certain foods beyond a low FODMAP diet because the low FODMAP diet includes all food groups um, and is nutritionally um, adequate when done appropriately. Mm -hmm. It's what happens is a lot of patients will say, oh, I can't have dairy, I can't have this, I can't have that. Or um, they may be a vegan or they may be a vegetarian. And in those cases, you have, you know, you have to be a little bit more in tune, a lot more in tune to what they're eating and making sure that they're meeting their nutritional needs and supplement as needed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. And the fact that you actually have a challenge phase is such good information because people do get stuck in that original phase quite a bit. Definitely. So the introduction of oats, um, which prebiotic are you, which, um, so resistant, yeah, resistant. I'm sorry, go ask the question. I no, just jumped in the gun. No, that's okay. I just was curious if it was for adding galacto-oligosaccharides or what, what's your strategy with adding oats? Yeah, so I'm adding oats because they are rich, they're rich in resistant starch, which can um, be a great prebiotic. Um, and it is not a FODMAP because it's a starch. So it's a long chain carbohydrate. So it doesn't have, it's not classified as a FODMAP. So mm -hmm. if I had a patient that was on the low FODMAP diet doing really well after three weeks and they, you know, came to me and said, you know, I really am concerned about prebiotics and I, I want to make sure that I'm having enough. I'd say, you know, well, why don't you start with, you know, go on to my blog, pick an energy bite recipe that's made with raw oats, which is a source of resistant starch. And this is one way we can try um, to boost your prebiotics. But I do want to add here that prebiotics, um, we don't all respond to prebiotics the same way. I think people think of everything as like, we're all the same and humans mm -hmm. are not all the same. And prebiotic um, the results of consuming prebiotics have a, a number of rate limiting steps. For an example, if I fed, you know, 25 people my raw oats in an energy bite, um, the goal would be that they would increase some of their probiotic microbes and that would increase their butyrate production. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen for everyone because there might be in you know, five of those people, they don't have the bacteria, uh, they don't have the bifida, they have, you know, they're not responding to, they're not consuming those oats, or they do have the bacteria that consume the oats, but those particular bacteria in their gut do not make butyrate. Mm -hmm. So you, it's just not, there's a lot of rate limiting steps, so it's a little bit of a guessing game. You know, I'm going to say, yeah. well, try the oats. I can't promise you that you're going to have a greater butyrate production. And butyrate is a short chain fatty acid associated with uh, reduced risk of colon cancer and a fuel for the colon, but it might or may not work. So um, because the gut microbiome plays a big role with that and we're all different. We all have our own fingerprint, mm -hmm. you know? Such a good point. Yeah. I think also, you know, their personal history, how many courses of antibiotics they've had, all these various factors that um, whether they were breastfed or not, or moved from various countries, it's just all plays a role in whether or not they're going to be able to process certain um, fibers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, that's really good. A good point. I, um, 
want to detour a little bit at this point of the interview to talk about people who are non-responders. One of the things I've really appreciated about, appreciated about watching your career is just to see how you think out of the box with people who, you know, are maybe have other health conditions that um, you thought you would start with the low FODMAP diet, but perhaps there was a twist in the story and it didn't go as well. Right. As expected. And you've really blogged a lot about some of these conditions. I thought you could maybe just go into some other aspects of conditions you think about for people who aren't responding greatly to the low FODMAP diet. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really interesting, I would say, you know, outside of diet for my practice, I would say the bulk of the patients that come to my practice have constipation hmm. and the bulk of them had a condition called dysnergic defecation, which I've talked about a lot on my blog. And basically dysnergic defecation very simply is just, you know, you're instead of relaxing your sphincter and your muscles for a bowel movement, you're, con you're really tightening them. Hmm. And so um, these patients really benefit from physical therapy and biofeedback and um, the physical therapy, um, pelvic floor physical therapists do a variety of different techniques to really help patients have adequate bowel movements. Mm -hmm. And that by far has been probably the biggest tip that I've given my patients. So I would say 90% of my patients have had physical therapy mm -hmm. and 75% of them have done remarkably well mm -hmm. with, um, with the physical therapy. Is it a, um, is it a specific type of physical therapist? That it you is. Yes. It's a pelvic floor physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And if your listeners are interested, you can just even Google on my blog, Kate Scarlotta, pelvic floor physical therapy or constipation, put those words together and you'll get, you'll get some um, posts. I've had um, two, at least two, maybe three posts with one of my favorite pelvic floor physical therapists here in Boston, and her name is Jenna Leader. Um, so you can look at Jenna and my um, sort of Q&As on my blog talking a little bit about it. But I feel like it's, it's such a, it's just, when I think my trifecta has always been, do they have SIBO? If so, treat it. Do they have dysnergic defecation? If so, treat it. Give them a little low FODMAP diet and see you later. That's like my trifecta. Those, mm -hmm. That is the majority of what I do. And that's with constipation? Um, constipation, yep. Constipation predominant patients. Mm -hmm. Although you certainly could see a physical therapist for, um, for diarrhea as well. Um, but um, constipation patients with a dysnergic defecation has just been really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, and then for other um, sort of interventions to think about if the low FODMAP diet, I find if the low FODMAP diet is about 60% effective, not enough for where I want it to be, um, usually the patient has something else going on, whether it be SIBO or dysnergic defecation or something else. Mm -hmm. um, I've had other patients come and I'd say the vast few, but um, come to my office that just cannot do dairy at all. Mm -hmm. And um, in this case, I start thinking about the different types of proteins in dairy. And there's two different really kinds of beta casein in, in um, cow's milk, um, A1 and A2. And mm -hmm. um, A2 is found in breast milk. A2 mm -hmm. is found in goat and sheep milk. And it is in some individuals, um, looks like 
that in some, not, and I would, I don't know the numbers, but in individuals, um, some people are sensitive to that A1 protein. Mm -hmm. An easy test for that, rather than say go dairy-free, an easy test for them would be to try goat cheese mm -hmm. or, you know, goat milk or, and see how they do with that. See if they notice a difference. There's also a product, A2 milk, that you, you could, they could try on the market if that's something they wanted to do. Yeah. But there's, so there's been some patients that have, that has been their ticket and that's really helped them. Yeah. Um, that. Um, another um, diet for consideration uh, or cons uh, another condition, I would say, is something called mast cell activation syndrome. And these are the patients that present with GI pain, often diarrhea, um, but also a number of other systemic um, symptoms, hives often being one of them, low blood pressure, fainting, headaches, uh, rapid heartbeat. Um, and in these patients, a subset of them in clinical observation in my practice have benefited from the low histamine diet. Mm -hmm. um, so mast cell activation syndrome basically just means you have mast cells that are activating more frequently and a little bit more readily than normal. And mast cells have histamine in them amongst other different kinds of mediators. So the body can get kind of overrun with histamine, it appears, and reducing histamine in the diet in a subset of patients has been helpful. Now, I've seen thousands of patients. It's not a condition I see a lot of. I've probably treated about 11 patients um, over the course of seeing thousands of patients. Um, but I will say in that, that subset of patients, the low histamine diet has been very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, another consideration um, would... I just want to mention that you have a really good interview, three-part interview on your blog for that, for people who want to follow up on uh, more information. That, that series... Yeah. Oh, on the mast cell activation syndrome? Yes. I mean, yes. that's phenomenal. Thank you. Yes, that was um, the first one in particular with Dr. Hamilton from um, Harvard is, is great. He's, he is such a great resource for me, and, um, and that's really got a lot of information. Thank you. Um, I also really like my bile acid diarrhea post, and I interviewed one of the world-renowned experts in that area as well. Um, bile acid diarrhea is a common source of diarrhea, and um, it really is treated just simply with a bile acid sequestrant. And it's a little bit of a trial and error. There is some testing that you can do to look at um, if you have excess bile acid in your stool. Um, but that's another consideration or condition. If the low FODMAP diet isn't helping you and you have, you're still experiencing diarrhea to look for that. Um, and then the other um, sort of a more emerging um, condition in adults is looking at um, sucrase isomaltase deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, and they're looking specifically, there was some studies out of UMichigan looking specifically at individuals that did not respond as well to the low FODMAP diet. And they found that in those individuals, they had some genetic SNPs for um, some, you know, related to sucrose-crase isomaltase production or mm -hmm. affecting that. So that is something I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more readily um, being tested, swabs, looking at certain SNPs 
um, genetic mutations or alterations that are affecting that enzyme. So sucrase also maltase um, is an enzyme complex that helps you digest sucrose, which is sugar, but also some starches as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a great um, website, which I can, I don't have off the top of my head, but I can send you and you could put it in your end notes um, to, to learn a little bit more about that condition. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say the sucrose isomaltase and having to modify starches and sugars from the diet might be helpful, histamine, and then also just exploring other conditions such as pelvic floor dysfunction, dysnergic defecation, histamine intolerance, particularly for those patients with hives, heat intolerance, uh, syncope. Uh, think about it in your POTS patients. Um, that Those kind of can often go hand in hand. That's, that's a wonderful synopsis. Thank you. Um, that really helps to uh, expand how we think about these patients and, and kind of veer when, when things aren't going as planned. Because as you, as you mentioned, um, the, the conditions that you listed are, are rare. So it's really important for people listening to um, approach things with more of the common conditions first. And, and then if those aren't haven't been adequately responsive to treatments, then maybe explore some of these other avenues. Absolutely. So, um, well, the uh, FODMAP direction, like where is it going now as compared to um, in the past? Where, where do you see the future of the um, low FODMAP diet and where, where's the trajectory of its use clinically and research-wise? So I think from a research perspective, um, a couple two sort of um, thoughts, you know, sort of uh, areas of research that I find interesting. Um, and one of them is really looking at, um, you know, different markers of inflammation, LPS, the histamine uh, relationship with the low FODMAP diet. Um, I think we're going to be really looking more at metabolites and how that is um, playing a role in how the low FODMAP diet helps with symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's one big area. The other big area right now is food fear and the escalation of eating disorders in this country. So it's, it's doubled from like 2000 um, to 2016, and I can get you the paper on that, but we're really seeing an increase and rise in just generally speaking, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And then when you put, you know, G, someone with GI-induced uh, pain with food, you can often see disordered eating, which is vastly different than an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, kind of overlap to some degree. And as practitioners and as patients, we really need to recognize when food fear um, is affecting um, a patient's ability to um, nourish their body, mm -hmm. um, affect their mental health, yeah. um, their life, their social life, their food-related quality of life. So I think that we're going to be looking at doing a more modified version of the low FODMAP diet. 
going mm -hmm. ahead. And this was recently sort of explored and discussed um, in a paper done by Emma Halmos and Peter Gibson from Monash. It was a beautiful paper. I, I really appreciated it. And it's something that I would say, you know, speaking to other FODMAP experts in the country, U.S. dietitians have been kind of doing this flexible approach already, mm -hmm. um, but they coined it the FODMAP gentle approach. And really, mm -hmm. um, a FODMAP gentle approach is just really looking at the patient's diet and highlighting the high FODMAP foods and really only restricting, not getting micro with the diet, but really looking at the big sources of FODMAPs, wheat, onion, garlic, milk, um, not getting micro with, you know, a piece of sugar-free gum, not getting micro with, you know, uh, pistachio nuts maybe, but mm -hmm. unless the patient was consuming a bushel of them, you know, yeah. but really looking at the diet and saying, hey, listen, you know, you're eating wheat at every meal. Can we switch that out and just have it at dinner? Mm -hmm. You're eating onion with lunch and dinner. Why don't we remove that? And and I I love this approach, quite honestly. I, I would like this to be the new approach to the low FODMAP diet. Just like we, instead of deep diving into bile acid diarrhea, we, we look at the big things. What are what are the bigger possibilities here? I look at the, the FODMAP gentle approach as one. Let's just see if this even works at all. Unless someone had extremely severe symptoms. Um, you know, where you feel like, let's just calm the gut down with the elimination diet. I think mm -hmm. there is a subset of IBS patients that we could manage just perfectly with this FODMAP gentle approach. So mm -hmm. I do think that that we're going to see a little bit more of that, especially because of our food culture right now is really bad. Um, and food fear is rampant. Disordered eating is rampant. It's, re it's more escalated in the GI population than the general population. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you eat and it causes pain, that makes sense. The other concern I have in this area, a very big concern of mine, is I don't want my patients to be labeled with an eating disorder um, when their degree of fear is appropriate based on their body's reaction to eating. Right, and so we have to find a fine line with that. Uh, what it what is normal fear in IBS? What is normal food fear in someone with SIBO? Um, and figure out where the line is when we need to get them psychological help and intervention, and when we just need to be a supportive healthcare provider and not escalate that by putting too many constraints, uh, dietary constraints, um, you know, on their lap. Yeah, and I think you do a really great job of modeling that when you're looking at some of your posts and Instagram pictures, and um, it's it's a, definitely a situation. You know, my response to your posts is that you you have a really deep respect and an enjoyment in culinary arts and food, and you've you've taken your own situation and made it work for you. Um, and it, it there doesn't seem to be a lot of messaging of food fear or food restriction when I read your posts. It's, yep. it's really uplifting. Good. Well, I appreciate that you noticed that because I, it's the last thing I think people should fear is food. And, but I do understand it and respect it mm -hmm. um, because it's real for patients. Um, we just need to figure out and help patients when it is really getting escalated to help them because, you know, 
one of the things that's so obvious is that if you're stressed out, your gut's going to be stressed out. And if your diet is stressing you out, then it's counterproductive. Yeah. So we really need to make sure that the individual can see that because sometimes they're so in it and in the weeds with the diet, they, they can't step out and go, wow, this is really impacting my everyday life. Yeah. This is not a good thing. Like I, I maybe have taken this a little bit too far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. You know, the, the flexible approach seems to be also a good sign of clinical response, right? That people are able to start um, flexing into different varieties or variations of the low FODMAP diet. It usually means that they're, they're responding well. Right. Right. And there is some data coming out of U Michigan. They are looking specifically at which FODMAPs are most problematic for most people. Mm -hmm. So this will actually give us better insights into which ones to pull from the flexible, more gentle approach um, based on that data. So that's forthcoming. And I think will be really insightful for all of us. Excellent. Because the goal is not to have, you know, I could say it till I'm blue in the face, a super restrictive diet. It's, it's really to um, eat what you love and, you know, the, what loves you back, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, at this point, I'd love to hear more about um, things that you would like to share with us. I know that you've gone on to get some more advanced education. I'd love to hear more about that. And if you could just talk about your books, your research, anything else you'd like to share, and then just leave us with some closing thoughts. I love that. So yes, I decided in my 50s to go back to school. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm fortunate that I'm, um, I live near UMass Medical School. Mm -hmm. So they had a blended program, which meant that I could do some online classes, which allowed for flexibility, especially in the summer, because I have a cottage in Maine. So I want to be up there. And then during uh, the fall and spring, I took classes at the medical school. So it was mostly veterinarians and medical uh, uh, doctors in my program, which was, and the classes were about 10 people. So it was such an awesome experience. Mm. Um, highly recommend a master's in public health degree. It, it's really an awesome education. Um, my goal really was to uh, go from working individually with patients to understanding um, you know, their issues, where there needed to be research, and then hopefully take my public health degree and come up with, you know, some research projects where I could um, make a bigger, you know, impact um, for, for larger quantities of people through public health uh, initiatives and research. So mm -hmm. that's where I'm kind of heading, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple research projects I'm involved with right now. Um, so I'll keep you posted. Um, one of them is a, just a survey study, just really looking at some perceptions around nutritional counseling um, with gastroenterologists. And another study um, is more of a, a larger scale study that I can't really broach at this time because it's not mine. Um, and um, let's see what else. Um, and I'm speaking all over the place, which has been really fun um, and working um, alongside a lot of the FODMAP uh, gurus in the country, GI doctors and um, 
dietitians working on some educational programming. So that's been good. And really trying to kick it back a little bit more. I was working really hard for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and just uh, enjoying my chocolate lab and <laughs> you know, walks on the beach and, and doing a little bit less heavy lifting, but still kind of doing the things that I'm really passionate about. It's wonderful. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank Sounds you. Yeah. And um, you're still um, planning on keeping the blog active and um, Instagram and all that. Yeah. I'll, you know, I really love Instagram. It's so easy and fun and I love food photography and it's just easy to share what I'm eating because I'm eating. And <laughs> so well, that's easy. Yeah. Uh, the blog I definitely tailed back a little bit on, but I'm trying to um, do four to two to four posts a month is, is my goal. Mm -hmm. um, I've been on a lot of uh, talks lately, so I had to peel back a little bit on that. But I do have some really um, hot topics coming up. I have um, a great uh, blog post coming up on stigma and IBS, so I'm excited about that. I have another blog post on hypnosis. Um, I have one on hypnosis, but this is one of the U.S. experts, Dr. Paulson, so I'm excited mm -hmm. to have him. And then I have another post coming from Dr. Mark Pimentel, just um, sort of updates in relationship to SIBO and what's going on with methane positive SIBO and mm -hmm. some of their interesting um, studies out of the MAST program there mm -hmm. that he heads up at Cedar sinai Excellent. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm keeping busy. Um, but like I said, a little less, um, I'll still keep the blog until I, it's not a passion for me, but, um, I've definitely curtailed from two times a week to two times to four times a month. Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, yeah, I think that, that will uh, conclude our visit today. I really appreciate it. You've been a big inspiration to me in my career and you, your recommendations have helped a lot of my patients and continue to, and you're, you just have really helped move us forward. And your um, the impact you've made is just substantial. And thank you for your, your generosity and being here with us today. Oh, that is so sweet. It was my pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with Kate Scarlatta. I would encourage you to bring up your interest in the low FODMAP diet to your primary care physician, your gastroenterologist, your naturopathic physician, and functional medicine provider. In my practice, there are some patients that will go on the low FODMAP diet. I've used this diet for going on eight years in, in practice and it has been helpful for many. And I encourage you to visit my website and read the show notes. I put some links up to some of the research she mentioned and also some of the resources that were mentioned in the episode. Thank you for following this episode and for listening. I know you have a lot of choices out there and I really appreciate that the One Thing Podcast has become a podcast that you tune into and continue to share it and please like it on your favorite podcast player. We are growing and we're excited to have a number of really interesting guests in the upcoming weeks. So thank you again and we'll see you next time.